By the time Exodus 3 rolls around, Moses is a fugitive running from the most powerful empire in the world, the Egyptian empire. He's on the backside of the desert tending some sheep that belonged to his father-in-law, Jethro. And there in that remote part of the world, unnoticed by anyone hardly, he has an encounter with the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God places a calling on the life of Moses. And that calling is that he will be the deliverer. He will lead the people of God out of bondage in Egypt. But if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, if you want to go there, you don't have to, I'm going to read it. But I just want you to see that God gives Moses a captivating vision that goes along with this great calling on his life. And I think it's important because I'm going to speak to you this morning, I feel the Lord leading me to share with you in this message about our vision. It was important for Moses to have a vision. With this great weighty calling that God had placed on his life, if he was going to do what was the impossible, lead a nation of slaves out of slavery, he would need a vision. He would need something to inspire him. Something that he could look ahead by faith. And God gave it to him. I draw your attention to Exodus chapter 3. This is not our primary text, but it kind of sets the stage when we talk about the vision of the church. Because in verse 7, God said to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Could I, could I just stop there for a second? Folks, God never changes. He's immutable. He's the same today as He was yesterday, yes and forever. Do you find comfort there seeing God saying, all the way from the lofty heights of heaven, looking down upon these menial, no-name Hebrew slaves, He says, I know their sorrows. I've got encouragement for you today, brother or sister. If you're here today and your heart's burdened, and you're struggling under the weight of issues or crises or, or pain or heartbreak, I want you to know something. The God who holds the planets in place and speaks life into existence is the God who says to you and me, His people, I know your sorrows. I love to know that God knows. I love to know that He cares. But here's the vision. God says in verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And God makes allusion to that again over in verse 16 and 17. That land. I'm going to take them out of that harsh, cruel environment that they are being subjected to slavery in, that they are eking out an existence in. They feel like animals and not people. And God says, I'm going to take them to a place that is a wonderful place. Moses, it is a land that is a land of plenty of space. There will be a land that will be plenteous 
flowing with milk and honey. And you know, I believe that vision stayed on Moses' mind as he stood in the court of Pharaoh and was telling him, here's Moses, a fugitive, standing before the most powerful man in the world at that time and saying, God says, let my people go. I believe even as he stood there and looked Pharaoh in the eye, he looked beyond Pharaoh and he saw that land, he saw his descendants and the people of Israel in that land flowing with milk and honey. I believe when they stood with their backs to the Red Sea and the, the Egyptian army was coming down upon them to destroy them and they thought they were trapped for sure, I believe even as Moses looked at that harsh predicament that he saw that land of milk and honey. He saw the vision. He never lost sight even in the wilderness. As they're trodden along and the people are rebellious and murmuring and griping and complaining and they're, and they're, you know, having to eke out an existence on manna. Listen, I believe Moses never lost sight of the vision. Milk and honey. A beautiful land. Isn't it interesting that he never got to step foot into that land? But he never lost sight of the vision. And I really believe, brothers and sisters, members of Cornerstone, and I want to say to our guests, thank you so much for coming to be with us and sharing our worship experience today. But Cornerstone members, I want you to know something. We are in a real challenging time as we seek to move forward. These are trying times. You don't have to be oblivious to ignore that fact. These are challenging times that God has placed us in and it will require great faith on the behalf of the members to trust not in the pastor, though I appreciate your confidence in me and the other leaders, but ultimately our trust has got to be in God. And with the challenges that we have ahead of us, to move forward, I want you to know something. God has given us a vision. This vision didn't just come about. This vision God gave to us a number of years ago, and I believe with all my heart, it's still the vision God has for our church. And as simply put, our vision statement is, and some of you know it by heart, you should, you've heard me repeat it enough, becoming a kingdom church for the glory of God. And that's the vision that God has given us. We exist for the purpose of glorifying God by advancing His kingdom through enlisting and equipping and engaging and encouraging and empowering His people. That's what glorifies God. And yes, brothers and sisters, it is our place, it is our role, it is our calling to bring glory to God. Do you realize that's the primary purpose for you being on this earth? God didn't put you in this situation that you're in life. He didn't bring you into this world so that you could become rich and popular and, and, and famous and productive. And all. No, God didn't bring you into this world for your pleasure. God brought you into this world for His pleasure, for His glory. It's all through the Scripture. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's talking to you and me too. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Folks, let me tell you something. Christians are kingdom people. 
We serve the King. We just sang praises to His name. We were worshiping Him and singing how great He is. And we are a kingdom people. Whether you realize it or not, the sooner you can realize it, the sooner you can be on task for being who God has called you to be, individually and as a church. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, these things being things that we clamor after, we worry about, we seek after, He says, all these things will be provided unto you. But seek first the kingdom of God. And in doing so, bring glory to God. Let me ask you, as an individual Christian, and let me ask you as a collective congregation, how well are you doing in bringing glory to God, glorifying God with your life. That's something we need to ponder. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 was addressing Christians in that early church that were under a great deal of persecution. These were not easy, comfortable times for Christians. They were being hunted down and persecuted and some executed simply because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the heat of the, the persecution, Peter says these words to those Christians, those early Christians in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says, let your behavior certainly not bring reproach against the good name of Christ or against you. He said, but let your behavior be so godly that even those who seek to accuse you will see your good works and they can't help but give glory to God. Giving glory to God is important to Peter, but it was also very important to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. You may recall in chapter 10, verse 31, the Apostle Paul said to those early believers at the church of Corinth, he says, therefore, whether you eat, so he's probably talking to a bunch of Baptists there. We sure know how to do that. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. I'm afraid that too many of us as contemporary 21st centuries, Christians have lost sight of the purpose for our being. We're more, more concerned about what can I get to make me look good? What can I do to improve my image? What can I do to make people like me and adore me? And we forget about We're here for God. In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says to His disciples, He says, Herein is My Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be My disciples. In Ephesians 3.20, the Apostle Paul, these powerful words, says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think, according to His power that works in us, He says, Unto Him be glory! Unto Him be glory! Where? In the church! How? By Christ Jesus! Throughout all the ages! Throughout all the ages! Unto Him be glory. And that's why we're here. That's why every church is on the face of the earth. Every Bible-believing evangelical church. You said, but what is this deal of glory? 
If you look up in the dictionary, you'll find that glory means renown, honor, magnificence, resplendence, distinguishing quality. That's what we're supposed to heap up on our God. So how do we glorify God? Since the Scripture says that's what we're supposed to do, well, again, the dictionary says to glorify means to extol, to light up brilliantly. We like to do that with special people in our lives. I know we grandparents are often guilty about wanting to shine the light on our grandchildren because we're so doggone proud of them. And we just want everybody to see them and they see them in their best light. To glorify is to light up brilliantly, to, to lift up in worship. Becoming a kingdom church for the glory of God. Let me just launch into our vision and try to get this done in a reasonable amount of time. As a kingdom of God people, we commit to several things. Listen carefully. Number one, as a kingdom people of God, we commit to carry out the Great Commission. Folks, let me tell you something. That is absolutely, ultimately important. When Jesus, just before His ascension into heaven, gave that last Great Commission to His disciples, He he gave them their marching orders. And it's not just for that twelve. It was for every born-again believer that would succeed them down through the centuries until Jesus comes again. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things whatsoever. I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Dr. Gene Mims in his book, Kingdom Principles of Church Growth said about the Great Commission, he says, it is the single driving force of every Bible-believing congregation. Listen, if the church is not focused on carrying out the Great Commission, we've missed our mark. We've missed our calling. We're off track. That's the driving force of every church. And so as a kingdom church, a kingdom people of God, We have to carry out Jesus' great commission. But not only that, we also commit to practice His great commandments. And when that scribe came to Jesus in Mark chapter 12 and also in Matthew 22 and asked Him simply, Rabbi, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Trying to trap Him. And Jesus without hesitating says, You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with every fiber of your being, you shall love God. And and let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, that is still the greatest commandment. And that's what a kingdom people of God do. They are motivated by a love for God that causes them to willfully, sacrificially follow Him wherever He leads. And that's our vision, not only to practice His great commandments, but to observe His Ten Commandments. And I realize, you know, when people scout over Exodus 20, and they oftentimes will say, but preacher, you know, that's old book. That's the old law. We're under grace. Folks, I've got news for you. The very divine principles that God gave to Moses to guide the people of Israel still apply today. 
God says, you shall have no other gods before me. When He says, you shall not create for yourselves graven images that you bow down to. When He says, you shall not take my name in vain. When He says, you shall observe a day of Sabbath and remember that. When He says, you shall honor your mother and your father that your days may be long in the land that God has given unto you. When He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his servant or his donkey or anything that belongs. Listen, those divine principles are still applicable today. Jesus said Himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. <laughs> you missed the point. If you think that I came to abolish the law, Jesus says, oh no, I came to fulfill the law. I came to take it and move forward with it. And as a kingdom of God people, we are committed to live out His new commandment. Simply put in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said to His disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that you shall love one another. As I have loved you, you shall love one another. He's talking to Christians here. And He says, By this all men will know you are My disciples. By your love for one another. As a kingdom of God people, we have to commit ourselves to not give affirmation to, not just nod our head to, but to live this. And God help us if there's any, any semblance of anything to the contrary of that. There's no room in the body of Christ among kingdom people for jealousy and gossip and backbiting. None! We should love one another to the extent that we would be willing to die for one another if necessary. As a kingdom of God people, we commit to those. But let me, let me focus in. You know how you can do that with your zoom lenses on your cameras and all? You can be looking at the wide angle, big landscape scene with the trees and the fields and the flowers and you just zoom in. One flower. One petal. One bee. And he's got a gnat on his left ear. <laughs> I was exaggerating. Let's zoom in. We talked about the kingdom of God, people, which we are collectively, but, but now let's bring it down to fine-tuning. And let's talk about kingdom citizens. One at a time. What does our life look like? Or should it? If we fulfill this vision, and that's what the vision is. It's, it's what I see Cornerstone being. We're not there yet, folks. Lord knows we're not there yet. But just as Moses looked beyond the, 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 the scrappy landscape of, of slavery in Egypt, he saw in his mind, through the eyes of faith, he saw that land. He saw that beautiful, spread out, plenteous land flowing with milk and honey. He saw Israelite children running through the meadows and singing and eating honey and praising God and no hindrance or restraints. He saw that. And as we look through the eyes of faith, I see Cornerstone Church members who resemble what I'm going to describe for you here in our vision. These are characterizing qualities of church members 
who are kingdom citizens, number one, they engage daily in Bible study. They know the importance of being in the Word of God, seeking God's will. It's, a, it's just as sure as they're going to get up and eat their bowl of Wheaties or oatmeal or whatever you toast or strudel. Just as sure as they're going to get up and brush their teeth, they're going to open up the Word of God and they're going to say, Speak to me, O Father. What is your desire for my life? In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says to those who are following Him, He says, If you abide in My Word. Now folks, abide in God's Word doesn't mean what a lot of us do. Oh, i got to do some Bible study. Ah, uh, okay, Jesus wept. All right, what's next? Abiding in the Word is like you're the night before the final exam in biology 805. They're advanced. And you know you're going to be asked all these detailed glossary definitions and terms. You're, hey, let me tell you, you're abiding in that thing. You forgot to eat. You, forget, you don't answer your phone. You don't do any texting. That, I know parents are saying, wow, my, that sounds like my teenager in a coma. <laughs> but but, but you're, you're, you're in it. You're living in it. Why don't we do that with God's Word? Because Jesus says, if you abide in My Word, if you stay in My Word, meditate on My Word, focus on My... Let it, let it just ruminate in your soul. That means chew your cud for those of you that didn't grow up on a farm. When a cow burps and gets that grass that's already been chewed and comes back up and gets in the jaws and chews it some more and swallows it and then later burps it back up. It makes you just want to run over here and get a salad, doesn't it? <laughs> Ruminate on the Word of God. Chew on it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Why? Why did Jesus say, if you abide in My Word, you are My disciples? Indeed, because He said, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. There are far too many people calling themselves Christians today who are in bondage to sinful habits and sinful attitudes and sinful relationships and sinful practices. You're in bondage to it. And you won't gain freedom until you get into the Word of God and discover who you are and who God is. And see that Jesus Christ, through His shed blood, breaks the shackles that bind us Oh, listen, i got to move along. Kingdom citizens, this is us. Have daily prayer time. Hearing God speak. And you know, Jesus was talking to His disciples in Matthew chapter 7. And He's talking about the importance of prayer. And folks, I, I, I'm a firm believer in the importance of prayer. Jesus gives us these teachings in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you who is who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then been evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you're wondering why you don't have blessings in your life, if you're wondering why your life seems empty as a Christian, when's the last time you really tuned in to God, got into His Word, got on your knees before the Lord, confessed your sins, and then asked Him? Jesus made it abundantly clear. He says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Ask God. God wants us to come before Him. He wants us to pray. How often? Once a quarter? That's about how some Christians pray. 
Sometimes our prayers are Hail Marys. Just as we getting to go, getting ready to go for that driver's license test, or, or just as we're going in to ask the boss man for a raise, or, or just as we're going in to apply for a job, you know, we'll throw up a prayer. Help me, Jesus. So I'm the Lord by scratch his head and say, Now who are you? I hadn't, I hadn't heard from you since 2005. No, no, Paul says we should pray without ceasing. It should be an attitude of prayer. My granddaddy Coleman, he was one of my spiritual mentors when I was growing up, the man that whipped me the most. But he loved me. But he, he had that attitude of prayer. I can remember working out in the fields, and back then they had horses and pulled plows and didn't have the tractors and all, so it'd be awful quiet out there. Be walking behind him, you know, uncovering the bike as he plowed it. Now, he, he'd be talking. Just dog. Him and Jesus talking. My cousin Ronnie for a long time thought that he was going around. My granddad was saying, Crazy Lord. But when he found out, he was saying, Praise the Lord. But, but that's what Paul is saying. Just be so, so connected with your, with, with the Lord that you just constantly pray and kingdom citizens do that. Let me move on. Kingdom citizens practice biblical giving. Oh, now this is where you begin to squirm. Oh, Lord, preacher. Why'd you have to go there? I was having such a good time with the message. Because God, Want you to understand the blessings that come through faithful giving. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, God says to the Israelites, He says, bring all your tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then He goes on, I like this, He challenges them. He says, try me. And you know something good's going to happen if God says, go on, give it your best shot. Try me. Todd. Give back a portion of that which I've so bountifully given to you for my, my cause. He says, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you. See if I will not pour out for you blessings so much that there won't even be room to store it. Problem is, there are too many people in the church today who don't even want to take God upon His Word. And they wonder why they're eking out in existence. And why their checkbook looks like it's bleeding. There's so much red ink in it. Could it be because you're just not faithfully giving back to God what He said to give? What's your attitude about giving? Kingdom citizens, I really believe, have a great attitude about giving. I believe it's reflected in what Paul said over there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, when he says, For this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Now think about your giving now, okay? Think about how much you give regularly to God's kingdom cause. He who sows sparingly. So you reach in your pocket when the offering plate's coming around. You're looking to make sure nobody's seeing. You get out your change purse. You, the youth are thinking, he's got a change purse? Those, they still make those things? Of course I do. And you reach down in there. And you, I know i got a penny in there somewhere. Paul says if you, if you give sparingly, or so sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But he says if you, those who give bountifully will reap bountifully. And Paul goes on to say, and let each person give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly. You know, I wish I could be an usher one day. Because I'd like to just watch people's faces when they are putting money in the offering plate. You know, the husband's sitting there and holding on to that dollar. Wife said, go ahead, give, give it. I am, I am. You know, and they're giving like, okay. And let each person give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves. What kind of a giver? 
I didn't hear you. What kind of a giver? Smile now. What kind of a giver? Hey, let's take them an offering. Where are the ushers? Kingdom citizens understand the importance that... Listen, God doesn't need our money. We're not supporting Him. He owns everything. His brother Eddie prayed in the offertory. God owns everything. He's just showing our faith and our love and admiration for Him and saying, Lord, I want to give you... I want your missionaries to be supplied. Lord, I want there to be plenty of copies of Bibles all over the world. Lord, I want seminarians to be trained to be preachers and ministers and educators. Oh, Lord, I just want to give, give, give. I was looking for Mr. Cash. I'm sure he'd probably say, Amen. Cheerful givers. Amen. That's what kingdom citizens... Not only that, kingdom citizens are actively serving in the church. Actively serving in the church. You realize it's a privilege to serve the Lord? It really is. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, He says, As each man has given a gift... That's all of us. Everybody has been given a spiritual gift to use to serve the Lord in the body of Christ. And it says, and as each man is given a gift, he says, serve one another. To demonstrate the manifold grace of God. Every member should use their gift to serve other members. We've got wonderful, gifted church members back there in the nursery right now. Back there with our preschoolers right now. Would they like to be in here? <laughs> Maybe some of them say, I'm glad I missed the sermon today. I want to listen to that big mouth preacher. But, but I'm telling you something. They are using their gifts and abilities. Earlier, our teachers taught. We've had people up here that have been blessed with musical talents. We've got people who are gifted in administration. We've got people who are gifted in mercy and service helps and on and on and on. And this church would dry up and die if the members stopped. Using their spiritual gifts to serve. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, he says, He, Christ, gave some to be apostles and some pastors or some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry. There's no room in a kingdom church for pew sitters unless you are truly physically disabled. And if that's the case, praise God. We, we, you still carry an important part. Your presence means so much to the life of the church. But everybody that has ability to be able to do, needs to be doing. There's a sign-up sheet over there in the Hall of Opportunity. We need two more teams of, of housekeepers. And really, you, you know, you, if you, you're able-bodied, if you clean your own house, you help clean God's house, go over there and sign up. Serve actively in the church, but I need to move along. And then kingdom citizens, you and I, individual citizens of the kingdom of God, we live holy, fruitful lives. Our church is fruitful. I know that because the nursery is shrinking. And all you young, young, young couples out there, God bless you. There's one way to grow a church. I come from a fruitful people. My mother had 11 children. Several of my aunts and uncles had 10. My grandparents, or my maternal grandparents had 65 grandchildren. That's not counting the great-grands. That's just grandchildren. I tell folks our family reunions look like Custer's last stand. <laughs> Except we were peaceable. We didn't go on the warpath or nothing like that. We just ate. <laughs> but Jesus said, in John 15:5, He says, I am the vine... You are the branches. If you abide in me, 
He says, you will bear much fruit. He who abides in me, Jesus said, will bear much fruit. He says, it, he says without me, you can't do anything. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. How fruitful is your life? I'm not talking about babies now. I'm talking about how much of your life is doing for the Lord? How, how much of your life is impacting other people for the Lord? Let me tell you what citizen, kingdom citizens do. They impact people in the church. The fruit of their life in the church is that they are encouraging people. They're helping people. They're, they're edifying people. It makes an impact on the church. But also, they're outside the church evangelizing. They're telling people about Jesus. They're being fruitful. That's what kingdom... Listen, as I look at the vision of our churches, I look through the eyes of faith down through the corridor of time. I don't know how far, but I see a church. I see this very sanctuary where we have so many empty pews. I see it being filled to the brim. Not with people who are sitting back passively wanting to be entertained, but people who are actively doing all of this. They're studying the Bible. They're praying daily. They're giving to the Lord. They're serving in the church. They're bearing fruit. And they're excited about worship. That's where I see God leading this church in this great vision. i got to move along. Enough about talking about it. I picked on y'all individually enough. Let's get back and look at the bigger scope now. That church I was just describing to you that's filled to the brim and the sanctuary excited, actively participating worshipers, actively serving worshipers, actively giving worshipers. Let me tell you something. There are criteria too about this kingdom congregation I want you to see. There are things that set a kingdom church apart from average run-of-the-mill church out there that's just going through the motions of doing church. There's a big difference between a kingdom of God church and a church that's out there trying to mimic the patterns and, and, and trends just to be uh, trendy and to do what everybody else is doing. Kingdom churches aren't necessarily the biggest churches numerically, but I'll tell you this, they are the strongest churches biblically. Because they are manu- they are turning out mature, Bible-based, Spirit-filled, grounded in the Word of God, believers of Jesus Christ who can hold their own against the forces of evil that are out there. And that's the kind of church our country is desperately in need of. Today and every year moving into the future, it becomes increasingly so. Because the culture in which we live is becoming increasingly opposed to and aggressive against the gospel and Christianity. So what is a kingdom congregation? As a kingdom congregation, we commit to what? Number one, worship. Real worship. Biblical worship. Could could I just quickly walk you through the Bible? Old Testament, New Testament. Could I just take you back and let you see what, what does worship look like? If you go over to Psalm 95, and I want you to see there, beginning in verse 1. This is, this is biblical worship, okay? This is people. This is the people in the church being actively involved in worshiping God. Oh, listen to verse, verse 1, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Now, when he's saying let us, he's not talking about just the choir. He's not talking about the, the musicians. 
He's not talking about the praise team or the pastor. He's talking about the whole congregation. Everybody. Oh, come. Everybody. Let's sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Worship. You realize what worship is? It is a humble expression of our deep, abiding love for God. When you read responsibly, you have a chance to express your love for God. When you give in the offering, you have an opportunity to express your love for God. When you sing the praise courses of those wonderful hymns that Eddie leads us in, you have an opportunity to express your love for God. And how much are we supposed to love Him? With how much? All our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, every ounce of you, when it comes time to worship God, how dare you sit back with your arms crossed and say, see if you can entertain me. That's not what I see in Psalm 95. I see people who are so absolutely exuberant about being the people of God. They can't contain themselves. They're singing, they're shouting, they're bowing down. They're praising God. That's the cornerstone I see through the eyes of faith. That's where God's taken us. That's what worship will be like. So Eddie, you may have to shed that suit and get some, some uh, exercise clothes up here, brother. You look like you're in Zumba with Brittany. You're gonna, I mean, you're going to have to be very active to lead a congregation like that. We have to buy you a case of being gay. Rub down every Sunday. Hey, hey, I'll be in it too, but praise God. Praise God. It's nothing more pleasing to the sight of our Father than to look down and see people, His people, blood-washed people, excited and exuberant and participating and shouting and praising God. I'm going to get excited in just a little bit. I, want to, I have to take you over to Revelation because you can't talk about worship until you talk about Revelation. Man, alive. You're talking about looking through the eyes of vision. That's exactly what we're doing through John's eyes, given through faith, through that great revelation. Man, alive, you're talking about worship. They, they got it going on in heaven. And, and, and that's the pattern we want to look for. That's what we want to imitate. We don't want to imitate some nut on television that has some crazy antics. We want to imitate what the Bible says true worship is. And so as we look in Revelation chapter 4, I'm going to have to do this very quickly, but look at me with verse 8. I love this. Because there before the, the throne of God is that crystal glass sea. And the 24 elders representing the tribes of Israel and, and, and the disciples and, and all the church are, are gathered around the throne of God. And there are four creatures. And I won't go into the description, but I'm going to tell you something. If you woke up at night and you look at one of them sitting on the edge of your bed, you'd have a heart attack. But these four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around them and within. This is verse 8. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honors and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that's us. Praise God, that's every born again, blood washed. Listen, when those, when those creatures start praising God, we just get so caught up, we just fall down before Him, cast down our crowns and just give Him glory. And listen, we join together. 
and singing and praising Him as we fall down, casting our crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. That's worship, folks. That's what God expects of His kingdom people. But not only that, we as a kingdom congregation commit to fellowship. True, genuine, biblical fellowship. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, he says, So we being many, we're one body. And we're all members, one of another. We are connected. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Every Christian is connected in the body of Christ. I got news for you, Cornerstone members, and those of you who are members of other churches, I got news for you. We belong to each other. When you rejoice and, and, and you shout with joy because something great happens in your life, I should be shouting with joy with you. I should be rejoicing with you. But when you're down and you're hurting and you're grieving and you're crying, listen, those of us who are your brothers and sisters need to be right there with you. Fellowship is more than just eating a meal, though I'm all for that. You look at the Acts church, the first church in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Man, those people were doing it. Fellowshipping. They were coming together every opportunity as the church was growing. They were listening to the disciples impart doctrine to them. They were praying together. They were seeing great wonders being worked before their very eyes. They were sharing everything. Nobody held back selfishly from anybody else. If somebody was in need, if you had it, you gave it. That's fellowship. That's biblical fellowship. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, he commends that church. He commends them not only for their exceedingly growing faith, but he also commends them for, quote, the love of every one of you all, you all, because he was southerner. The love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. That's fellowship. Biblical fellowship. Loving one another. Working together, serving together, celebrating together, grieving together, helping each other. And discipleship, just as Jesus said in the Great Commission, listen, we have to commit to biblical discipleship. And Jesus made it quite clear, you go and make disciples. He didn't say go make converts. He says you go and as you go you make disciples. What are disciples? Disciples are followers of Jesus Christ. And He says you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then He says you teach them, teach them everything that I've commanded you. And that's what we have to be as a, as a kingdom church. And I appreciate Brother Eddie serving as our discipleship minister and doing such a wonderful job. He's one of the best teachers I've sat under. And listen, and listen, we need more. We need more teaching of the Word of God. Discipleship is more than just teaching, though it's imitating. If we are a kingdom church, if we become a kingdom church, let me tell you what will be going on. Lost sinners, worldly people, carnal believers will be going through a metamorphosis, a transformation. The more that they're part of this kingdom church, guess what? They're looking less and less like that old sinful person and they're becoming more and more like Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2.5. He said, let this mind which was in Christ, be also in you. Spiritually speaking, you know what God's wanting to do? A brain transplant? You say, ooh. <laughs> I don't see a lobotomy. He's wanting to transplant the mind of Christ 
into your mind so that the thoughts you think resonate with the thoughts of Christ. That's a good thing. Ministry. We must commit to ministry. Using our spiritual gifts. Serving one another humbly in the body of Christ. And finally, as a kingdom congregation, we commit to evangelism. And that's not final in terms of the least important. That's one of the most important things the body of Christ does. That's what kingdom of God people do. Colossians chapter 4 verse 5, Paul says, Be careful in the way that you act towards outsiders. Don't treat them as if they've got a plague. They may look different from you. They may be a socioeconomic level up above you or down below you. It doesn't matter. Their skin may be in a different shade than yours. Their language may be a little different than yours. Paul says, be careful how you act towards outsiders, those who are outside of the body of Christ. He says, be careful. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, I don't want to scare our guests, okay? We're not going to tackle you. But I believe that when people come into the midst of the congregation, we ought to give careful consideration. Are we courteous? Do we make them feel welcome? Do we want them to sense that they are in, at home here, among family, and draw them in? We're not drawing them to ourselves. We're drawing them to Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. Go and make disciples of all the nations. As I conclude the message, I conclude with our theme statement. There it is. Our, our best for God's glory. If you're courting a girl, guys, seriously. Or if you're courting a guy, girls, seriously. And that big moment comes where he's going to take you to meet his parents. She's going to invite you over to dinner to meet her parents. I don't think you'll just go get your old gym sweats on. Nah. I don't think that'll be the day that you'll miss a shower. <laughs> I think that when you find yourself on your way over to meet your prospective in-laws you will probably be putting on your best. Not just clothing-wise, but with your behavior. You want to make a good impression. I didn't with Jan's parents, but they were gracious. I was just a Wake Forest boy. I didn't know much. I wasn't one of those refined Duke guys, you know. I just plowed up at the table and said, What's for dinner? <laughs> but like I said, my in-laws are gracious people and I love them to death. We want to give God not leftovers. We don't want to give God second best. We don't want to give Him just what we happen to muster up. Brothers and sisters, if I say anything that you hold on to, hear this. Every day, not just on Sunday. Give God your best. Give Him the best of what you have to offer. Why? 
Why, when there's so many other important people in your life? Because He created you. He formed and shaped and fashioned you in your mother's womb. He breathed the breath that you breathe in your lungs into your life. He sent His Son to die on a cross so that you don't have to spend eternity in hell. God gave His very best for you and me. How dare us think that when we come to church or wherever we are, we're going to hold back on Him. Shame on us! Our best for God's glory. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be glorified as each member matures in Christ-likeness and commits to fulfill God's divine purposes for their life and for the life of the church. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is a kingdom church for the glory of God. That's what I see God showing us. And you got to see it through the eyes of faith. you got to look beyond the struggles of today and the, the, the hardships of today and the frustrations of the day. You've got to look beyond the clouds of today and see as faith breaks beyond those clouds, that bright and shining vision of a church like a city on a light on a hill shining forth with the great and glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ. Glorifying God. Glorifying God. Glorifying God all throughout the land. That's the Cornerstone Baptist Church that I see when I'm on my knees before God. And that's the vision God wanted me to lay before you. You pray for your pastor and other leaders over the next several weeks. We're going to be before God in prayer. We're going to be begging God to open up our eyes to see through His Word. What is it He wants us to do? What is it He wants us to be? What is it He wants us to do to fulfill this very vision? And we will involve you in that process. I'm excited. Can we kind of pick up on that? I'm going to have to go home and take two sugar diabetes pills and a blood pressure shot. <laughs> That's all right. Because when I look and see things that God reveals, it excites me. It's more than, it's not about me. It's beyond me. It's not about just you. It's beyond us. It's about God. And we are just blessed enough to be a part of what He wants to do. Well, let me close out with prayer. Father, thank You so much for speaking to our hearts. Thank You so much, Lord, for continually keeping this vision before us. We have to be reminded from time to time, just as I'm sure You reminded Moses and the children of Israel as they made their way through that wilderness that they had a home waiting on them. A wonderful land. A beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. Lord, I pray for the youngest members and the oldest members, all, the, all of our members, that God, You would keep this vision before their eyes to realize that if we're simply faithful to You, obedient to You, Lord, that you, you will bless us to be able to realize this great vision. We thank You, Jesus. We praise You. In Thy name we pray. Amen.